do wisdom psalms and a penitentiary. penitentiary. Is this my thing? Like crazy? Just doesn't like me. All right. Well, as we take a look at Psalm 49, again, we're looking at a wisdom psalm. So when we come to the wisdom psalms, they're psalms that uh, the psalmist wrote following uh, uh, proverbs, proverbial concepts. And so as we look at Psalm 49, it's kind of interesting because Psalm 49 lays out for us um, the idea that the man is incapable of saving himself. And uh, it's funny because a lot of people struggle in that concept. We struggle with the idea that there's something we can do, there's something we can uh, equip ourselves with, or some way we can uh, earn what God has to give us. And so it kind of pulls it down to the concept of man is not able to purchase, to buy. His wealth won't save him. His money can't save him. But I think you could substitute... Anything you want to for wealth. You could substitute the concept of your works. The Bible tells us that our righteous deeds are as filthy rags, right? The, the book of Isaiah lets us know that we are, we are in a position of being uh, unequivocally falling short of the glory of God. Incapable in and of our own selves to, to reach what God gives us by grace. The free gift of salvation that we receive by faith that that brings us into a right relationship with the Lord. So listen to how it begins in Psalm 49. He says, hear this, all peoples. So it's important that we recognize he's talking to everyone on the planet, right? All peoples means all peoples. It's not that complicated. Are you with me? He says, give ear all inhabitants of the world. Just in case we thought he wasn't talking to everybody. All the inhabitants of the world. That word there used for world indicates all people within humankind, mankind, everyone, everywhere. And just to emphasize that, look at the next phrase. He says, both low and high, rich and poor. So he's talking not only all mankind, all types. The wealthy, the poor, the well-to-do. Everyone, everywhere finds himself in the same place. Remember when we went through the book of Romans, we talked about the concept that all mankind is guilty of, of being uh, or having offended uh, the God of the universe. They're guilt, we're guilty. We are separated from God through the fall, born, as David will tell us when we get to Psalm 51 in a few minutes, that uh, he was born, utterly born in iniquity. So we're born lost. We're born in sin. We're separated from God. That, that something needs to occur and we are incapable of bridging the gap on our own. So this is a message. Listen to everyone, rich and poor, low and high. My mouth will speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb and I will disclose my dark saying on the heart. 
He says, here, listen, and I'm going to lay out for you the problem, the issue, and how that problem can be overcome. So verse 5, he begins, why? Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? So why should I be afraid? Everything's going wrong. We're surrounded. The idea that iniquity, sin is at my heels. The enemy that he's talking about here is not the enemy that that presses in to enslave or to uh, physically do anything. The enemy he's talking about here is sin. It's that which separates from God. So why should I live in fear of that which separates us from God that, that nips at my heels? And he's going to explain because so many believe, still today, still we still deal with this issue today, believe that, that they can bridge the gap between our brokenness and our separation from God and God on our own merit. That we somehow can, can bridge that gap. We just try a little harder. We do a little better. If our good outweighs our bad, right? But the Word of God declares to us that our good, our best, is, is filthy rags. It's, it falls short. That we all fall short of the glory of God. That we can't reach up to, to that requirement. The question naturally would come forth, well then, then what can we do? That we can trust in a God who loves us and reaches to us. We can't reach to Him, but He came to us. He came to where we are where we uh, are at so look what it says in verse 6 so those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches none of them can by any means redeem his brother so just so you understand we're not only talking about money none of them by how many means any means right no one by any means can redeem his brother we're not capable of saving ourselves. 1933, the Humanist Manifesto came out and declared for all mankind in a separation of, of mankind from seeking the Lord, which the scripture tells us no man seeks the Lord anyway. But as a separation to that, the Humanist Manifesto said there is no God, we must save ourselves. What the Word of God declares is that's impossible. It is impossible for any man to redeem his brother. For any man to save anyone. In fact, just, just so we can kind of get the concept, bear the concept for us. Flip over to Romans chapter 4 verse 5. And it, this is what it says. In verse 5 it says, well let's back up to verse 4 so you can kind of get the context. Verse 4 says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace. But is debt. So we're dividing the difference between someone who thinks they can work for salvation and someone who recognizes that salvation is a free gift from God that we receive by faith. Fully and totally and utterly and completely by grace, not by works, right? Ephesians 2 9, we are saved by grace. How? Through faith. It's the gift of God. What's it say next? Not of works. Why? So no one can boast. Who saves us? God saves us. It's God's ultimate work. But see, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but debt. But to him who does not work. And what is the work that he does do? If you want to pick a work, it says, But believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. So this is kind of an important concept, all right? Because if somewhere in our minds we think we're earning salvation, 
What the Word of God says, according to Romans chapter 4, verse 5, is that is not the faith that saves. That's faith in me. That's faith in my works. It could be faith in a system or a concept, but it needs... The object of our faith is infinitely important. Without the object of our faith, and the object of our faith being Jesus Christ, our Lord, God in the flesh, who died for us and was raised again, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. That Jesus, not some other Jesus, that Jesus, faith in that object, putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that is what saves, not what we do or, or faith in what we have done. And so this is the same thing that he's saying. With wealth, no one can save himself. None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. So ultimately, where is the ransom due? It's kind of the important thing that he's bringing out, because the ransom is due to God. Where is the offense ultimately placed? The offense for sin ultimately is, is, is to, to God. We have offended God. We find ourselves sinners in the hands of an angry God, separated uh, from God and held out of the fires of hell by the hands of a God who loves us and longs for all men everywhere to be saved, right? Isn't that what he declares to us? So, so we, as we look at this, this uh, psalm, this wisdom psalm, we want to recognize, what's the point of the wisdom psalm? The wisdom psalm is telling us man is incapable of saving himself. That man needs the grace of God. Even back in Psalms, even in the Old Testament. How was Abraham saved? We go all the way back to Genesis, first book in the Bible. The Bible says Abraham was saved because Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What did Romans 4, 5 say? Not to him who works, but to him who believes in he who justifies the ungodly, Jesus Christ, is it accounted to him as righteousness. So the idea is the same from Genesis all the way through the Bible that mankind is saved by faith, by putting his faith and trust in the ability of God to reach down to sinful man and save us, not for sinful man to reach up to God. Does that make sense? So this is what the psalmist is laying out for us. He says in verse 8, For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever. How costly is the redemption of man's soul? Think about what it costs. Yeah, it cost Jesus Christ everything, right? The Messiah came, fulfilled the law in living a perfect life, died a substitutionary death for all sinners everywhere, bore upon himself on the tree the curse of mankind, right? And that what the, the Old Testament scripture said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He became a curse for us. The Word of God very clearly describes it, that he who knew no sin became sin, that you and I, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the work of justification. So the idea that, that forgiveness or redemption or the ransom is costly. It's costly. Redemption costs a great price. But God was willing to pay it. To whosoever will. To whosoever will. God was willing to pay. That he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. So the idea that there's going to be an eternal redemption worked through Messiah, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, so that mankind... Whenever the Bible talks about the pit, especially in the Old Testament, it's just talking about death. What's the greatest enemy mankind has ever faced? It's death. Nobody ever beats him. 
Death always wins in the end, right? Everybody dies. It's appointed unto man wants to die, right? Then the judgment. So the idea that there is this enemy death. But what does the scripture tell us? Who finally defeated death? See, up until this point in the Psalms, man could never defeat death, but Jesus defeated death. That's why he's able to declare, death, where is your sting? Where's your victory? Because the soul who dies in Christ is raised again, even as Christ was raised again, the promise of the resurrection. So death is defeated. It has no hold. But prior to that, man's great desire was to overcome death. Is it really all that much different now? Isn't there a million ways men are trying to overcome the death and, and death's hold on mankind? They, they take themselves, cut their heads off, and freeze them. I'm hoping that later on they'll figure out how to unfreeze and put life back into them. Uh, kind of scary thought, huh? I'm not sure what will be inside the person when they unfreeze them and bring them back. But nonetheless, mankind's con consistently trying to defeat that enemy. And that's, that's what he's laying out. For he sees, listen to this, for he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person perish. Everyone dies, a great equalizer. No matter how great a life you had, no matter how lousy a life you had. Think about the parable that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. Opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Rich man had everything he ever needed, Lazarus never had a thing. Rich man lived in, in wealth and, and uh, a good life, and the and the Lazarus lived with nothing his entire life, begged all his life long, never had anything that was his. Opposite ends of a spectrum, but both were made equal by what event? They both died. They both died, and that's what the scriptures laying out for us. Everyone dies. All men die, whether fools or wise. And what happens to their wealth? Somebody else gets it, right? So Solomon builds the greatest kingdom on earth. Has a thousand wives and concubines. He has so much money they stop counting it. So how much money would it take for you to stop counting it? That's a lot of money, right? At some point. So, so Solomon don't even count it. In fact, they say silver and gold were as common as stones in Israel. If you've ever been to Israel, there's one thing that Israel doesn't is not short on. That's stones. There's a reason why they chose to stone people. Because everywhere you go, there's a stone. Somewhere there's the stone, stone, just big old pile of rocks. That's what Israel is. But it says that there was more silver and gold. But what happened when Solomon died? His son comes on the scene. And Solomon even said himself when he worked, when he when he when he wrote through through the Proverbs. He said, now how do I know after I've done all this stuff and I've amassed this great wealth and I put together this kingdom that my son won't be a fool? And what occurs? His son, who already has more silver and gold than he can count, chooses to raise the taxes on the people and divides the nation. And north and south split. And you have a divided kingdom through First uh, and Second Kings and first and second chronicles and and you see the the ultimately the the downward spiral of israel to the captivity of babylon as a result of the foolishness of of a man so wise or foolish everyone dies and when we die do we get to bring anything with us no 
Their inner thought, look at verse 11, is that their houses will last forever. Uh, remember King Nebuchadnezzar? And uh, he looked at the kingdom of Babylon and he said, Look at this great kingdom that I have built. And he had a dream. Remember the dream? He had a dream. And, and the, the dream is really interesting. You, you ought to spend some time studying through the book of Daniel because in that first dream, in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He calls his wise guys together and he tells them, Tell me what I dreamed and the interpretation of it. And the wise guys say, How can we tell you what you dreamed unless you tell us what you dreamed? And Nebuchadnezzar said, well, if you're really wise, then you can do it. And if you can't do it, I don't really, am not interested in your opinion. So they can't do it. Nebuchadnezzar gets mad. He's going to cut everybody's head off, who, who is a wise, one, of the, one of his wise men. So what happens? Daniel gets word of this, and he says, well, let me pray to God, and, and we'll see what God will do. He's the interpreter of dreams, and God is able to tell me what the king dreamed. So Daniel prays. God tells Daniel the dream. And he tells the king, you are thinking in your head about the future. What's going to happen in the future? And the Lord God Almighty has answered you. And he gave you a dream. And you dreamed of an image. Head of gold. Chest of silver. Uh, uh, thighs of bronze. Feet of iron mixed with clay. That we have this, this declining value. And the vision of kingdom. And as he goes through and Daniel tells him, it's just important that you recognize all the things that Daniel told him as a result of this. First he said, you're the head of gold. So the, king, the, the kingdom of Babylon was like the peak of, of, uh, of kingdoms, but it's not going to last. And then it's going to decline. And then it's going to decline. And then it's going to decline. But when he got to the fourth kingdom, he said, Messiah will come in the fourth kingdom. Remember, a stone not cut with hands would smash all the kingdoms and it would slowly grow until it filled the whole earth. And so you have the coming of Messiah, the stone not cut with hands. Jesus Christ being what? The chief cornerstone, right? We, we, got the, we understand the concept of Christ being the stone. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us the stone that followed Israel, that gave the children of Israel water, was Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. So... Messiah comes in the fourth kingdom. All that stuff told. But Nebuchadnezzar said, Oh, no, no, no. My kingdom will never end. So he built a statue made of what? All gold. From head to feet. And he made everybody bow down and worship it. You remember the story? And that was all Nebuchadnezzar saying. That's not going to happen. Uh, my house will last forever. So how's Babylon look today? Like a bunch of broken rocks, right? A crumbled kingdom. Just like the word of God declared. They think that they can take their houses and their houses will last forever. But they won't. Men forget. Mankind forgets those who have gone before them. Their dwelling places to all generation. They call their lands after their own name. Oh, I know. I'll, I'll name this town Constantinople. You guys heard of that guy before, right? Yeah. Constantine. Names. The seat of his empire, Constantinople. Where's Constantinople today? Yeah, it's gone. You can't find Constantinople. They renamed it. The next guy had come along renamed it. And they renamed it. And they renamed it. And later on, should we go that far? It'll get named again. Something else. And you guys heard of a country named Yugoslavia? Think you can find it on the map today? No, there's no Yugoslavia anymore. Something else. 
There was one time the USSR. Is there a USSR anymore? No, there's Russia. And, 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 and some of the southern areas of Russia have, have broken loose, whether or not Russia, whether or not they're actually really loose or not. The point is, everybody thinks that the kingdom they've established is going to last forever. There's only one kingdom that lasts forever. And that's the kingdom of Jesus Christ, who will and is ruling and reigning forever. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Just like, just like every animal that walks the earth, man dies and the, the thought of him fades. Until he's just a sentence in a history book, if he's lucky. Scripture goes on in verse 13 and says, This is the way of those who are foolish, and of their posterity who approve of their sayings. Those who follow their sayings. How many people sat around Nebuchadnezzar and said, Yeah, we're going to be here forever. How many people still chant the same thing in the United States? Oh, surely we'll be a power forever. If you actually believe that, you, you are, have two problems. Um, you're delusional is the first problem, and the second problem is you don't learn from history. Every power declines. Not most. Every earthly power declines, fades, and is overcome at some point by someone else. Whether it's a slow fade or a rapid fade is irrelevant. The fade still occurs. In verse 14, listen to what he says. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Now, this is a time where the Hebrew, the translating of the Hebrew to English is difficult to get the whole sense. So, so like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Literally what they're saying is, death is their shepherd. What does Psalm 23 say? The Lord is their shepherd, one or the other. Either the Lord is your shepherd or death is your shepherd. Either you have victory over the grave or you're conquered by the grave. There's no middle ground. It's one or the other. <clears throat> Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. And their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. So talking about the destruction of all mankind. But look at verse 15. Whenever we see the word but, that ought to, ought to signal in our minds. Something is changing. Sharp contrast. In sharp contrast, all that we've mentioned before, in sharp contrast, God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. So, the Old Testament saint, the Old Testament faithful, those who are considered part of, of the saved of the Old Testament, what set them apart, what saved them, was looking forward to the salvation of God, that God will save us. That God's going to reach down from heaven and save us. The concept that it wasn't the sacrifices that saved me, it wasn't my works and the things that I did that saved me, God's, somehow God's going to reach down and save me. Looking forward to the fulfillment of the promises of God in Genesis chapter 3 to Proto-Evangelicum, where God said that the seed of the woman would destroy the, the enemy, the, Satan. Would destroy him. So we, we look at it, we recognize, we see that, 
that God is going to do the work. And that's the contrast. Man can't save himself. Man can't buy his salvation. Man can't do enough good works. It is impossible. God has to save mankind. Even the psalmist understood that. So he said in verse 16, Do not be afraid. When one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased, for when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. What do we get to take with this? Nothing. So everything that we have, our lives on earth, before God, is a testimony of our stewardship. <laughs> Almost. It's a testimony of our stewardship. This is how it's a testimony of our stewardship. We are given gifts. We are given a family, children. We are stewards of our children. The Bible says to train up a child, right? We're to teach them right from wrong. So, so we're responsible in a stewardship over our children. We're responsible in stewardship over our wealth, whatever we possess. What we did with our wealth, what we did with our children, what we did with our families, what we did with what we were given. To whom much is given... Much is required. So it's the idea. Being a good steward of what God has given you. You only have so much time to speak into your kids, right? So our responsibility is to be a good steward during that time. The, we only have, I don't know about you guys, but wealth is fleeting. <laughs> Money talks, but all it ever says to me is goodbye. But I have a responsibility while that's going on. For whatever I have, whatever, much or little, is re it doesn't matter. Five talents or one. I'm responsible for my stewardship. What did I do with what God gave? I don't get to take anything with me. But I get a choice to, to utilize what I have for His glory. Look what it says. It says, for His glory shall not descend after Him. That he's talking about mankind. Mankind and whatever he built on earth, his kingdom on earth doesn't come with him. Though while he lives, he blesses himself. For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. So he shall go to the generation of his fathers, and they shall never see light. But a man who, who is uh, in honor, yet does not understand, is like the beast that perished. The idea still over as we work our way through the psalm, I can't save myself. I'm responsible to God, who is greater than I. And if I don't understand that, it doesn't matter how much I have. How much gold, how big my kingdom, what I do on this earth, it doesn't matter if I don't have faith. If I don't recognize where my help comes from. The psalmist will declare, where does my help come from? I lift my eyes up to the heavens. I lift my, my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you. Lord of heaven. The idea that God is the one that carries us through. The wisdom psalm telling us that we cannot save ourselves. Psalm 50 then moves us now to the second wisdom psalm that we look at tonight. And the second wisdom psalm, a little bit different than the one that we just uh, worked our way through. This wisdom psalm is dealing with, with God as the holy judge. And God as a holy judge in this psalm is looking at his people. So this psalm, unlike the previous psalm that was to all people everywhere, this psalm, God's looking at His people. And there's, there's two categories He's going to talk about. He's going to talk about uh, the, the righteous who 
uh, who are worshiping uh, with their lips, but not with their heart. And then he's going to talk about the wicked who uh, are going through the motions, but there's there's nothing uh, um, real about what they're doing. So as he as he lays out the concept, he's going to tell us how it is. How what is it the worship that God's looking for? What is it that God's looking for from us in response to Him? Let's take a look. The mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. So I I believe when he's talking about verse two, out of Zion, this. This perfection of beauty ultimately is a Messiah who's going to come. And, uh, and, and that was the importance of Jerusalem. God picked Jerusalem. Messiah presents himself in Jerusalem. Is seen as Messiah in Jerusalem. Is hailed as Messiah in Jerusalem. When he walks into the city, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He cleanses the temple in Jerusalem, you remember? And when he leaves the temple, he says to the nation of Israel, See, your house is left to you desolate. It's no longer my house, I'm leaving. When we watch Jesus walk out of the temple area, it's very similar to watching the glory of God depart. He came, and then he departs. But here, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth. That he may judge his people. So the idea, God is a holy and righteous judge. And so he calls all heaven and earth to be witness as he judges his people. Guide my saints uh, together to me. Those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So he's defined the people he's talking to. Gather the people to me. What people is he talking about? Those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. He's talking about the nation of Israel. He's dealing with the nation of Israel here. He says, let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So God's going to look at their worship, at the, at, at the way they follow him, and he's going to bring uh, um, uh, his judgment on that situation. So first you have the warning, at least to the godly uh, on the outside. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. He defines, who is O my people? He says, O Israel... And I will testify against you. So this is God saying, this is what I have against you. It's important to kind of understand that as we look at what he's going to bring forth. He says, I am God, your God, and I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices. So the idea is God God is saying, you're guilty. Your sacrifices are inadequate. By the time we get to the end, we're going to see why. But ultimately, he says, I'm choosing um, not to rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. And then he says, he goes into the concepts of why. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats from your folds. He's saying, I don't want your sacrifice. <laughs> You're constantly giving me sacrifices, but I don't want them. Why doesn't God want the sacrifices of these <clears throat> who we see delineated as, as the godly or the righteous? Because their hearts aren't in it. They're going through the motions. Don't bring me your sacrifice. Let me bring it around the application for us today. We have opportunity a variety of times to give to the Lord, to to provide offerings, to provide tithes, 
as the Lord would lead us. God would say, look, keep it. If you're, if you're angry, frustrated, bitter about having to give it, don't give it. I don't want it. God's point is, I don't need what you're giving me. The sacrifices of bulls and goats didn't somehow feed God. It didn't somehow meet a need in Him. It fulfilled an illustration for God's people to understand that the wages of sin is death. Who died for their sin? A lamb. What did that lamb picture? Messiah. Isaiah told the people, all the way back, Isaiah 54, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 55, (coughs) that there was a price to be paid for their sin. And so that was the purpose. It wasn't somehow that the death of that lamb appeased God in his anger, and so he, he now he's not going to move. It was a as an illustration, it's a picture of what God one day would do for his people, for all the world. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son. What happened to his only begotten son? He died, right? He paid the price. The Bible said he was our propitiation. Our substitute sacrifice. He paid the price. <clears throat> excuse me. He paid, paid the price for our sin. So he says, I won't take a bull from your house, nor goats from your folds. Look at verse 10. For every beast of the forest is whose? Mine. God says it's all mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills. And what did that mean? Literally a thousand hills? Or is he saying all the cattle are mine? All the cattle are mine. All the animals are mine. All... The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What's that mean? All the earth belongs to Him. So whatever we have from the earth that is in our possession, it is ours by what? Stewardship. It's God's gift. God's allowed us to have something. He's allowed us to have that which belongs to Him, to have stewardship over it. To be able to give an account for what we do with that which the Lord has given us. He says, I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. I know them all. The Bible says not one sparrow falls to the ground, but the Lord knows it. God knows them all. He recognizes all. God is incapable of learning. The Bible says God is omniscient, all-knowing. If God is all-knowing, He does not learn. He already knows. Does that make sense? So He knows all the birds. He knows everything that is going to happen. It has been decreed by Him. That's scriptural. We, we, we like it, we may like it, we may not like it, but that's what the Bible says. So we know that is where, that is, that is what separates what, why God is so much, uh, so high above us. So, the Lord says in verse 12, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. God's saying, I don't need you to feed me. You get what I mean? God's saying, I don't need you to feed me, I don't need you to give me something It's important that we recognize that in the Trinity, in the triune God, clearly taught in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, within the Trinity, God lacks nothing. Those those characteristics of God, His omniscience, His uh, omnipresence, um, the fact that He is all-powerful, sovereign God, and the fact that He is love and justice and joy and peace and all the things that are part of the character of God, is utter and complete fulfillment within the Trinity. God didn't need us in order to understand love. He has love between Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God doesn't need us to understand joy. He has joy. 
between Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's nothing lacking from God. So why did God create us? So that He could express to us love. So He could express to us. So He could teach us. So that He could show us. So that we would understand those things. God doesn't lack anything in and of Himself. So He's telling the nation of Israel, I don't need your sacrifices. Your sacrifices don't feed me. I wouldn't tell you if I was hungry. For the world is mine in all its fullness. Everything here is mine. If I lack anything, I would already have it. But he doesn't. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? But this is what he's looking for. Look at verse 14. Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the city of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So what's he saying? Look. God's looking for our expression to Him. There's the one thing God asked for in Deuteronomy. In fact, if we work our way through the Scripture, it will tell us all the, all the law and the prophets are fulfilled in this one thing. What is the one thing God really wants? 619 commandments. What is the one thing that God's looking for in response from us? Deuteronomy tells us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment, how did he respond? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of the things that we look at in this psalm are expressions of our love to God. When you love somebody, you're thankful for them, aren't you? You're thankful for what they do. When you love somebody, do you do what you promise them? When it says pay your vows, it's not talking about paying your debts. What's it talking about? It's talking about when you make a promise to God. Lord, I promise I will... It says, keep the promise. Are you supposed to keep the promise to the people you love? Yeah, we're supposed to keep our promises to the people that we love. And then, the people that we love, when we're in trouble, do they come? Yes, they come. The people that we love, they come. They bring their deliverance. So how is it that God is glorified? He's glorified when we love Him. God's glorified when we love Him. When we, when we are able to express... That which God desires from us. Not that which God lacks. He has love. He doesn't need ours. But when we express that, we find our fulfillment in that which God is asking for. But then it says, but to the wicked. Now he's turned from the godly whose heart aren't quite in it to the wicked. In great contrast to the wicked, God says, What right do you have to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? Why, why, do you, why do you claim to be part of my people when you're obviously not part of my people at all? To the wicked, the ones who think because they have a, a, a history with God. Think about the story. Jesus told a story about a good Samaritan, right? He was asked, Who is my neighbor by a lawyer who wants to know uh, who is worthy of him expressing love to? So he says, the lawyer says, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells him a story. Two guys come upon a, a guy who's been beaten and left for dead. The two guys are priest and a Levi. The priest, his position said he should have a relationship where he loves God. And we can't express what we don't possess. So if I possess the love of God, Romans 5.1 says the love of God is poured out on our heart. By the Holy Spirit, then I'm able to express the love of God toward others. But the priest couldn't do it. His position said he should, but he didn't have it. The Levites, by birthright, should have been able to. The Levite was a priesthood. 
chosen of God for the priests. Uh, but he's unable to do it. I don't really care about their excuses. They're irrelevant. Who cares about their excuse of man's de- uh, near death bleeding in the road? Their excuses are ir- ir- irrelevant. doesn't matter. Oh, i got to go give a sacrifice, a lame excuse. If the dude is dead, uh, if it's me bleeding, I don't really care about your sacrifice that you got to go give. So none, I don't think any of that's relevant. What is relevant is Jesus is saying, at the end of the story, the Samaritan comes, who is a picture of uh, half-breed, useless human being, no possible way he could have the love of God in him. And he stopped. And Jesus flips the lawyer's question. And he said, not who's worthy of you, being a lawyer, uh, of you being a neighbor to, but he said, which one of these was a neighbor to the man who was hurt? Jesus flips the question. And the man can't even answer the question. He can't even say the Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy. The lawyer sought to trap Jesus. Jesus wouldn't be trapped. He wouldn't be trapped. It's not just our birthplace. It's not our position. It's not where we live. It's not who our mom and dad are. It has nothing to do with any. None of those things make us in a right relationship with God. So the Lord says to the wicked, what right do you guys have to, to say you're part of me? The Bible says they draw near to me with their lips, but what? Their heart is far from me. Their heart is far from me. These are the wicked. The difference between the godly is the godly is doing what they should do. The wicked aren't even doing what they should do. So on one hand, you have the godly because they're doing what they should do, but their hearts aren't in it. And the wicked, they think their relationship with God is, is due them because of their pedigree and not because of anything else. And the Lord says, what right do you have? What right do you have? Look what he says in verse 17. Why? Because you hate instruction and cast my words behind you. Now, a lot of people in the United States do this today. So, so uh, let me say unequivocally that the Word of God is authoritative in the life of every believer. And if there is a believer for whom the Word of God is not authoritative, then you're guilty of doing what these guys did. You're casting His words behind you. I, there, I, don't, I don't like every word that God tells me. Some of the things God says to me are hard. But it doesn't change the authority that they have. It's either, the Word of God is either what it says it is, or it's nothing. If it's nothing, pitch it. And live how you want. But if it's authoritative, then we take it all. Not, we don't cut out pieces. We don't say, I don't like this part, I don't like that part. We just receive it as the authoritative Word of God. And we move forward. These guys were guilty of throwing the words of God behind them. In other words... I'm not going to use the word of God to guide me. I throw it behind me. I don't need it. You get the difference? Thy word of I, I hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. Your word should be a, a light into my uh, a path, right? It should be frontlets for my eyes, according to Deuteronomy 6. That the word of God will guide me. But in this, the opposite is true. You're casting it behind you. You're not following what the word of God lays out. So it's not authoritative in their life. They cast the word behind them. And here's what they did. Listen, these are the works of the wicked. When you saw a thief, you consented with him. You consented with him. You didn't do nothing about it. And have been a partaker with adulterers. A partaker. One is a consent. 
So you consented to thieves. It's possible to consent to thieves without ever stealing anything, isn't it? You just consented to what they did. But then it moves beyond that. You're a partaker with adulterers. In other words, there's at least the implication that there's some level of sexual immorality within this person. Whether the, the immorality is toward idols or toward the flesh is irrelevant. Uh, it, it, it suits both ways. Both ways it, it works for the text. So he said, you, you consent to the thief, you partake with adulterers, and you give your mouth to evil and your tongue to frame deceit. So you use your mouth for evil. Evil. The Bible says there's, there's uh, six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination. One of those things is a lying tongue. Spreading gossip. Both of those things, it's funny because, and I don't mean to say that this is not a sin. The church has spent a lot of time dealing with the sin of homosexuality. Homosexuality is a sin. It's, it is in opposition to God's authoritative word. Like it or don't like it is, is irrelevant. Born that way or not born that way is irrelevant. I'm born a sinner, you're born a sinner. My sin's not worse than theirs. Their sin's not worse than mine. We're both sinners, guilty of offending God. And unless God reaches down from heaven and I repent of my sin and reach up, then there's no relationship. But if I say I have no sin, the scripture says, I lie and the truth is not in me. So that's the point. It's not one's worth worse than the other. And all those arguments are irrelevant. Who cares? You're born that way or you're not born that way. It's irrelevant. It's a sin. It's sin, period. I'm, I'm born with a propensity to steal. I would love to steal. Lots of ways a person can steal. The invention of the computer made it so much easier for me to steal, nobody even can know I steal. I can steal every movie made by mankind. I, there's nothing that has been created on earth that I cannot pirate. However, <laughs> I don't. But it's in me, just the ability, just the, just the challenge to say, you can't pirate this, makes me want to pirate it. So, so I recognize in me, I'm born that way. Does that mean I should just walk in my sin? No. It means I repent. Lord, I'm guilty. I've offended you by the way I am. Forgive me and save me and God saves me. It's the same across the board for every man, woman, and child on earth, regardless of their sin. Regardless, it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference. But the Bible says, six things God hates, yea, seven are an abomination, and lying is one of them. So why, oh why, do we spend all our time complaining about something that's not in the list of seven things that God hates, and so little time dealing with our tongue? James spent a whole chapter on the tongue. The tongue lights a lot of fires. And... Uh, we, we should learn, the scripture tells us, to control our tongue. This is the description of the wicked. He says, you sit and speak against your brother. What are we talking about? You sit and speak against your brother. That's gossip. That's gossip. That's a, that's the, that, that sin's almost never uh, uh, condemned. Listen, the Bible is very clear. Don't talk about your brother. Don't talk about him. If you've got a problem with your brother, what are you supposed to do? Go talk to them. Are you supposed to call your neighbor and see what they think first? No. You got a problem with your brother and what he's done or she's done, go talk to him. 
Is there ever a time we're supposed to gossip about anybody? Never. Never. But this is in the description of the wicked. Your mouth is given to evil, your tongue to deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Same concept, right? We're talking about gossiping. Gossiping, gossiping, gossiping. Talking about people we shouldn't be talking about. These things you have done, and I kept silent. Now, a lot of people think if God doesn't judge, then that's God's approval. And God is saying here, I just kept silent so you would recognize that your own conscience is going to condemn you. You know the things that are wrong. You know what's wrong. The Word of God declares what's wrong. The Bible says God's not slack concerning His promises, but He's what? He's long-suffering. Why is He long-suffering? That He doesn't desire that anyone would perish. Does God want people to go to hell? The Bible is clear. God does not want people to go to hell. Does God know there are people that will go to hell? Yes. You don't get to go around those two things. Remember, God can't learn anything. God knows it all. He has, he has it all already figured out. That does not absolve me of my own guilt. Because in my reality, here on earth, as I live my life out, I choose where I go. Right? I follow my heart, my direction, whether God knew what I was going to do or not is irrelevant. Again, God is, is outside of time. He understands and sees and recognizes those things. I'm responsible for me. I follow my heart. The Bible says that Satan entered it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. Remember we talked about it a couple of Sundays ago. The, uh, the reason what that scripture is saying is that it was in Judas's heart to follow Satan's direction. It means Satan didn't put something into Judas's heart that he didn't want to do. Judas wanted to do it. Satan confirmed it. And then we're gonna, we see Satan enter into Judas and off they go. Off they go. So we recognize that, that man is still responsible for his choices and for his decisions and the things that he does. He says... These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was like you. You thought that, that that was my okay. But, sharp contrast, I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Do not, chase, do not uh, despise the chasing of the Lord. God corrects those whom he loves. That's important. That's important. God corrects. Now consider this, you who forget God. Lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver you. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. C.S. Lewis said, what do we praise? We praise the things that we love. You get what I'm saying? So if we love God, we'll praise Him. Uh, the easiest thing, to you pick whatever you like. We'll, we'll sit around church after church and we'll, and we'll talk about a, a hundred things. I'll probably talk to somebody about bow hunting because I like bow hunting. I'll talk to somebody about... Uh, um, a variety of things, maybe sports, events, whatever things are going on. And the reason that we talk about those things is because we love them. The scripture declares to us that if you talk about that, but you never talk about the Lord, then you love that. You don't love God. If you love God, you talk about God. That doesn't mean you don't ever talk about bow hunting. You don't talk about making cakes. You don't talk about, about uh, uh, what is it, quilting, that stuff Kathy does. It's not saying you don't talk about those things. It says if that's all you talk about and you don't talk about the Lord, then you don't love the Lord. If you love the Lord, you praise Him. If you love God, you praise Him. I love my wife. I like to talk about my wife. 
I love my kids. I like to talk about my kids. Make sense? I love God. I like to talk about my God. I'm ashamed. I don't really love. I don't really love. And this is what he's declaring. If you praise, whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, who walks righteously, I will show the salvation of God. To him who walks righteously. I will show salvation of God. God's the one who does the showing. God's the one who does the saving. God's the one who does... Uh, who comes and enters in and, and shows the experience of salvation. So what does it mean to him who, who conducts, uh, to him who orders his conduct aright? To him who orders his conduct aright. To the man who makes the right choices. We're, we're not able to save ourselves, but we are able to choose where we put our faith. What is the object of your faith? It's the object of your faith yourself. It's the object of your faith your wealth. It's the object of your faith your church. None of those things save. What saves? The object of your faith needs to be Jesus Christ, the Lord. The righteous. All we get to do is choose in whom we have believed. And then God does the rest. God does the rest. And even our ability to have faith is a gift. And that what Ephesians 2.9 says? Even our ability to have faith is a gift that God gives. All of those things God gives. And so we, we have the opportunity. We have that those who conduct their lives uh, aright. Who choose to put their faith and trust in Christ. He will experience salvation. He will see the salvation of God. The psalmist laying out these things. My plan was to go through Psalm 51, but there's no way I could do Psalm 51 in five minutes. So unless you guys want to stay for another hour, I assume you don't. So we'll close out on these two. We'll pick up Psalm 51 next time. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.